Hello, listeners. Before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Today, I am talking with Catherine Cusick. I am super pumped to talk to you today, Catherine. I feel like you have so much to offer. You've gone into the weeds on all the technical parts of navigating your own path, legal, healthcare, getting a mortgage, all that. And you've also been carving this path on your own and with your partner. Uh, I'm excited to dig into that because I'm in a similar experience of being a dual self-employed married couple. Um, My condolences. <laughs> it's, I love it. Let's, for, for, we'll all of the, for the logistical problems, it's oh, otherwise yeah. fantastic. We'll, we'll dive into that, but I thought an interesting way to introduce you would be to read something you wrote to me, which kind of brings alive something that's energizing you. Do you mind if I read that? I would love that. <laughs> so you wrote... Housing, healthcare, insurance, and tax policies were designed for employees in ways that are now causing generation-wide disruptions in all those industries. Individuals blame themselves when those systems don't work, but they don't work by design. This is the stuff that really eats away at people when they worry about leaving their jobs or living the most meaningful life they feel called to live. Hell yeah. My plan is... (laughs) My plan is to spend the next however long spilling some ink from this point of view. I now have years-long visibility into where some of these policies fall apart, and I want to articulate what I'm seeing because I don't think I'm alone. I love this. Uh, You said you struggle with introductions, so I thought this might be a more fun way to introduce you. Um, So welcome to the podcast, Catherine. Thank you, Paul. Yes, uh, the things that I've written in advance are always... Uh, much better rehearsed (laughs) than the things that I just come up with on the spot. So that's very, very helpful. Before we dive into that, I want to start with a question I ask all my guests. uh, What are the stories and scripts uh, you grew up with that have shaped uh, what you thought you were supposed to be doing and now how you're trying to make sense of that now? Sure. So I was chatting with you off mic before a little bit about how a lot of things changed for me the year I turned 14. And what changed that year was really that I developed an interest outside of school. Uh, I went to a new school for sixth grade through senior year. So I did seven years at the same school. 
and had been there for half that time when I started my freshman year. But that year, I, my friends started doing a lot of theater. And so I started doing that with them. And it, it started me on an earlier path around acting and playwriting, which is a very long thread that isn't really reflected much of anywhere in my online presence currently. So it's, it's interesting to talk about. Um, that was a side of me that was all about my social life and friends and doing things that were joyful, doing things that were in the present and that involved, uh, my body and doing physical things that weren't sports. Um, and the other side of me, uh, was very diligent at school and very motivated by grades and A's and uh, reward systems that were based on points <laughs> and my GPA. And these were kind of two different versions of me. It was a, a bit of a bifurcation of my path early on, where a lot of things that made me feel alive came from somewhere else. And at the same time, I really liked school. <laughs> I really liked studying. I had a lot of moments in my uh, teenage years and throughout high school, my mother often uh, would, would, take, would try to pry textbooks from me and go hide them because she'd want me to go do something else. <laughs> Uh, but I just wanted to read and I just wanted to do all of the reading and do all of my homework. And then every now and then I'd go to rehearsal and go have friends. And so that was something that started splitting my personality around age 14. And then that same year, so that's in my personal life, but in world events, <laughs> Uh, I was 14 in 2001, and I grew up north of New York City, and my father worked in the Empire State Building. So he was in the Empire State Building a week or two into my freshman year of high school on 9-11, um, and came home safe, made the last train home and was home by the time I had gotten home from school. And I think about that constantly <laughs> because it was a terrifying day. Um, there are a lot of peers who went to my school who had exactly the opposite experience. I had the lucky experience. And I think a lot about what what could that other life have been? Because it would have been an incredibly tragic and terrifying life if he had not come home that day. And I think about that as a systemic thing that shaped part of my life because it was very, um, it made a huge impact on me at the time. It was completely outside of my personal control as a 14-year-old. Um, and a lot of that depended, the luck of that moment depended on what the World Trade Center symbolized. 
that the Empire State Building didn't. Right. And that's a very random thing to me from my perspective that made me lucky. Um, and it was a big moment and it was the beginning of very large world events kind of following me around and bookending my education. I also graduated in from college in 2009. So I graduated directly into the housing crisis and the financial crisis. Uh, and those kinds of things really made an impression on me at the time. They mattered a lot. They changed the course of my life a lot. And they were giant events I could not have predicted that many people did not predict that changed everything about my future. Um, so I think that those, those events mattered a lot to me growing up. And I think they did shape what I thought a default path might have been. I think if those things hadn't happened at those times, my, my vision might have been more narrow or might have focused more specifically on me personally as an individual. Um, and I think it's part of why I start to try to connect these large systemic things that we come up against, especially in something like in, in self-employment, um, that aren't individual and that yeah. are shaped by larger forces that you run into a lot and that can change the course of your life in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's... It's so fascinating. I think I'm a couple of years older than you. I graduated college in 2007. And us as the older millennials are sort of this lost generation in between two worlds. Yeah. Like we, 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 we inherited the scripts of the boomers. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> and the path sort of worked for them. Um, although there was a lot of like burying who they were as people to pull that off. Oh, um, yes. My dad was born in 1944, so he's technically oh, wow. silent generation. There's a whole lot about, you know, his story is not my story, but oh boy, the burying of, <laughs> right. of, of, of many things. <laughs> yeah, and then as we were graduating, I I got lucky. I, I always wonder the what if, if I was graduating in your year, right? I think sure. <laughs> graduating in 07 was like this last hurrah before yeah. a weird new world started to emerge. Like it was sort of easy to get job offers. I was like reaching for further job offers. Um, and like everyone sort of like was set. And then yep. us, we actually were fine in the workforce. We didn't get laid off because we were all so cheap. Like <laughs> companies, another stroke of luck being companies cheap labor. just didn't hire you, right? Yeah, <laughs> and they did, and they just kept us, and we're like, all right, just do a little more work. But that was fine when we were young. Sure. Um, so yeah, yeah, my my questioning of the system uh, lasted a little longer. What what was it like for you in college? I know, I think you went to Vassar. I did. Um, so, which is a very liberal arts. People do a lot of um, different things. A lot of people do have connections at schools like that. What What was your path? Like, what did you think you were going to do entering as a freshman? What did you end up doing leaving as a senior? So Vassar, 
has a fantastic drama department. And the interest in acting went through into college and after college for quite some time. Um, I, I was very funny using all of your uh, prompts as writing prompts and questions that you've asked as things to reflect on throughout my life. I always forget how I approached my college search. And every time I remember it, I think it's really almost batshit. I was very um, driven and very present at school and did very well there. But I didn't think about college very much. I didn't care <laughs> too deeply. I didn't focus on the SATs. I showed up that day and took them, and I got, uh, you know, a, an average score. And I thought it would be fine because I had a very good GPA. And then I think we had counselors. We had guidance counselors whose job it was to sit us down and talk us through a college search. And I hadn't thought about it very much. And then I ended up applying to one school. I applied to Emerson at first early action. So I picked one school and I was going to try to go there, but that was a BFA. That would have been of a Bachelor of Fine Arts in acting. And that's a very different kind of education than a liberal arts degree or a Bachelor of Arts. And I went, I had never been to Boston. I had never, uh, been anywhere with a really cold climate. I went to go visit in uh, the winter in the, when it was incredibly windy, which I think was really helpful because I was like, oh, I can't live here. Because <laughs> so it's Boston freezing. was that much colder than New York for you? Boston, I was there at a time. I think I was just like in a wind yeah. tunnel. It was something very specific that the day. Worst. The worst, like, 10 days of Boston or, like, what New exactly. York Yeah, really I, I was definitely there. Boston was, you know, rolling up the welcome mat and saying, don't come. Uh, I had gone to do my audition for that. And I did, you know, you do a, a two-minute monologue. You do a contrasting one. You do dramatic and you do comedic. And I did both of them. And I ended it. And the person whose job... It was to watch my audition and chat with me. Her first question was, why do you want to come here? Why do you want to come to this school? To this day, I don't know what I said to her because in my mind, my immediate thought was, I don't. I don't want to come here. Um, I lied in the moment, but I left that space and was like, well, this wasn't it. This isn't it. This isn't where I should go. And I went back to the drawing board probably for really only a couple of weeks because I went on a tour of Vassar, which was um, a little over an hour away from where I grew up. And that was my main criteria was that I didn't want to go too far from home. And I showed up at Vassar and felt like I belonged there very quickly. Awesome. And I went on the tour a week before they had two rounds of early decision. So their first round had already been done and I missed that round. 
But they had a second round, and that was due in like a few days after the tour. So I just went home and I filled it out and I sent them their application. And I was like, yeah, if you say yes, I'm coming. And I got in on Groundhog Day and I was done with my college search like a couple months later. And that's very different, I think, from a lot of how people approach their education. I, I really just picked a couple places. My backups were, were just because I had to have a couple of them. And I never used them. <laughs> I didn't uh, have any backups. I only applied. Yeah, I really like. I really decision. wouldn't have enjoyed those backups. <laughs> I just sent them things because I had to. How did How um, did you end up at American Booksellers Association? Was that your yeah, first job so, out of school? So there was a there was a break uh, after I graduated. So for all of college, I still focused on drama, and I studied drama, and I was an acting major. Were you thinking you wanted to be in plays or something like that? Yeah, I was going to pursue acting. And Vassar is a very smart and good school because they don't really track you that way. If you're going to be interested in theater and major in drama, you have to also um, do stage management. You have to understand lighting design. You have to also do costume design. You have to do the 360 degrees technically around uh, this whole experience. So I studied there, graduated, and then I lived close enough to New York City that I was going to audition and to try that route as, I think, some, something like 60,000 20 to 22-year-olds show up in New York City to pursue acting uh, every year, something like that. I was one of them. That's wild. Um, Yeah, I mean, it makes sense if you watch a Broadway show. Like, everyone is so talented. Uh, It's pretty wild. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is a... So that's a career where uh, there's an oversupply. And what's really interesting about the oversupply in acting in cities like New York or in London or in Los Angeles is that it's oversupply of anyone who's in your type. Uh, So my competition (laughs) for roles becomes people who look, sound, and behave like me, who are my age, who who present gender in the same way as I do. Um, And what happened there was that I, so I was, you know, 22, a young 22-year-old woman, and every script I got, everything that I read, all of the sides I'd get to go into auditions to read parts for, the writing was atrocious, just atrocious. The roles that were available to young women who are in their early 20s, who have a certain vibe, um, are sad. It was, it was a very sad and disappointing landscape where there just were not, there were so few well-written, well-done roles that were complicated and interesting people 
that I would want to be or a story I would want to tell versus everything that I had studied, which is the best of all playwriting in all of the world, where a, a great play is some of the best writing on the planet. Um, and then I show up into the commercial reality of that at that age, and it was nowhere near as inspiring. So another thing about that that I think you and I have in common is that I, at the time, in my early 20s, while I was pursuing acting, I realized over a couple of years that um, that that profession, despite the fact that I love it and that it's my first love and that I will always love actors specifically, um, the profession is very dependent and you need permission from other people to do that art. You need to be accepted (laughs) into things. You need to get past gatekeepers. You needed to have an agent. You needed casting directors to get it and to get you and to think you were doing something special and unique. Um, And you were very dependent on writers because you're dependent on the writing being good if the show is going to be any good. So I veered very hard into writing myself and into creating stuff for myself, vehicles for myself, vehicles for my friends just trying to write more often. Um, I ended up producing a play in 2012 near Times Square and in in a space. Here's a beginning story of why I start getting really interested in policies and technical technicalities that matter a lot. I was in a space that if you, it was 99 seat theater. And if you put one more chair in it, that changes what production code you're on. <laughs> and it changes what budget you're allowed to have. It ne- you need at least a $50,000 budget to have, uh, to, to have a production at that level. Uh, and it's about the number of chairs in the room. Wow. Uh, that's, that's an actor's equity um, technicality of producing. But so I I was doing all of these things and I was coming to this realization that I was dependent on writers and gatekeepers. I was writing a lot myself. In those years, I was reading constantly and libraries were really what was like saving my sanity and frankly, saving me from depression a lot. Um so so I came to some conclusions eventually another another thing about producing and self-producing this production in 2012 on this same specific code it was called the showcase code at the time actors equity is a union for actors and they create uh levels tiers of production codes the showcase code also had a specific thing in it where you couldn't charge more than $18 for a ticket, no matter what you were doing or where it was (laughs) or uh, what your costs were, what the expenses were, the pricing was fixed. Um, And by the time I finished doing that production, I looked at the money where I had lost money (laughs) and I... 
uh, put together, I was like, oh, the economics of theater don't work. Um, or at least they don't work in at this at the tier that I can currently access at age 24, however old yeah. I was at the time. Uh, the economics of theater don't work the higher up you go either. That's why Broadway tickets are a jillion dollars and why the audience for them is shrinking all the time because so few people can afford it. But uh, I looked down and saw the economics of this don't work. This isn't a viable pathway right now. I'm going to need to pay my rent. I need a job. Uh, so I went to Craigslist. And there was a job awesome. at the American Booksellers Association listed there, and they needed people who cared very deeply about reading and writing to work there. So I applied. <laughs> That's awesome. What uh, what stands out about that experience? I, I think I'm more interested in talking about like where how you ended up at Longreads, but what were yeah. some of the lessons you took to, took away from the book publishing industry? So the another set of gatekeepers. Ha ha. Another set of gatekeepers. It was fantastic because it it brought me very close to the business side of publishing and to the the economics of selling books and the margins of books. So for those who don't know, which I think is 99.99% of the universe, the American Booksellers Association is the trade association for independent bookstores in the United States. Um, I worked there from 2013 to 2017 as something like a field rep, and I covered half the country. There were two of us, uh, but by this time in history, the number of independent bookstores had gone significantly down since it had historically in time. Uh, but don't worry about the American Booksellers Association because uh, they have an endowment from having existed for 100 years. And that's what was paying my salary at the time. That said, my relationships, I was a relationship manager, and my relationships were with the owners and managers of independent bookstores in the United States. My regions were... Uh, the New Atlantic region, the New England region, the Great Lakes, and the Midwest. Uh, so it was about a thousand stores. And my job was to stay in touch with our membership and to give them anything that they needed and to share resources with them from the American Booksellers Association, which provided education and um small business resources for people who were trying to make that business work. It's another very tight margin situation. If you're making a 2% margin and you own a bookstore, you're doing gangbusters. You're doing fantastic. Wow. The amount that you're profiting is just like heads and shoulders over colleagues in the joint down the street that is going to close in a year because the economics don't work. And it brought me really close to how it works with publishers uh, setting the prices for books, that the prices are written on the inside flap, that the bookseller doesn't set 
that price, it brought me really close to how important it is to have, if you're an independent writer or if you're a new debut writer, you want frontline booksellers at independent bookstores to know about you and to evangelize you because those are some of the most powerful people in just like Maybe getting I need the to meet word these out. People. <laughs> yeah, hey man, I know some. <laughs> <laughs> so what how did you I mean this all sounds like fascinating experience especially yeah. where you ended up now. You're sort of you're in these like industries that have weird economics dying and you became super curious about the economics of that. Were you always interested in math or were you just like, I'm going broke, I should probably figure this out? (laughs) Those things are not mutually (laughs) exclusive. Uh, I love not going broke. I've To this day, I haven't gone broke. It's uh, great. It's going great. Um, Yes, I've always, and, and I've always been very good at math. So this goes back to the bifurcated personality. I still wanted to go home and do all my homework. I still wanted to, you know, get my five on AP calculus and did and enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, I have pretty strong feelings about how uh, genders get tracked out of STEM and STEAM industries. I know exactly why and when I got tracked out of math, uh, and it was linear algebra at Vassar. Uh, oh, a interesting. Female, a woman teacher. She, I skipped linear algebra because I, I just like my brain is not wired for it. <laughs> my brain is not wired for it either. I think it's a very, it, it, it's a completely different kind of thinking. Um, and I can only say that the way that that class was taught was basically hazing that like if you can't get it then you're not fit for math (laughs) if it's challenging for you then you're not fit for math and I was like well I'm fit for the drama department so I'm gonna stay there (laughs) uh they they're at least still welcoming me and saying I can be here So that's a very different story. But I was always interested in math. I always loved it. I was always interested in things working or not, in what makes things work or not. And money is a very important part of what makes someone's creative life work or not. I always cared about how are actors paying their bills. If 95% of actors' equity membership is unemployed at any given time in the year how do you how is that working <laughs> you know who, who's financing this entire industry because who, who's paying for the 60,000 people to move to New York City and pay New York City rent somebody's somebody's paying for it this is part of why a lot of these industries have trouble with accessibility and who gets yeah. to practice these art forms what what brought you to long reads? So I had been at ABA for four years. I had invented new jobs for myself. Nice. Uh, I took that's over a, there. That's a very, very common sign of people that eventually become self-employed. They're either jumping to different jobs very often or uh-huh. uh, creating their own work. 
I from from 2015 on, I made up all of my titles, and so I figured I should just keep making it all up. If I'm gonna make up the job, I might as well uh, run the place. So in 2015, I started doing a second job, and I I was fighting an uphill battle for years trying to get a raise, frankly. Um, and that was coming. <laughs> Looking back, is it just like, oh, I should probably just go to a more profitable company and that might be easier to get a raise? Well, it took me some time. It took me a couple of years to to let that sink in because I also cared a lot. It yeah. was a really cool job. That's awesome. Um, I was really interested in the people. It was the first place where I had colleagues who were all really smart and with it and lovely to be around and i cared about all of them so i i really wanted it to work but i was doing more and more work and getting more and more responsibility and looking around me and noticing things that needed to be done and then doing them but there was no relationship between that and my compensation there was no incentive to make things better or to fill gaps or to create things that needed to be made, uh, there was really an incentive to sit still and to not do those things. But so I took over social media management for them. No one was doing, it wasn't really being done. It was divided among five people, I think. And each person reluctantly was doing it um, on each day of the week. They would, they would, do musical chairs for whose job it was and no one wanted to do it. So I decided I wanted to do it and I took over um, the ABA book Twitter account and the IndieBound Twitter account um, because IndieBound was a, a program of the American Booksellers Association. That is a, that's an alternative to Amazon that now has turned more towards bookshop.org. But I was just, you know, on Twitter at work because it was my job. And then a tweet went by from a man named Mike Dang, who was the editor-in-chief at Long Reads at the time, saying they were hiring a social editor. And I just happened to look at my feed right when he sent it. And I happened to be following him, probably just because I was such a huge fan of Long Reads. Long reads was the thing that I'd read on my free time. And I was like, oh, this is my favorite website on the internet. I'm doing this job. I That's awesome. I wrote I I I opened my email, I opened my personal email account, uh, wrote him an email in five minutes that said, I would be great at this. You should chat with me. <laughs> I think awesome. it was very, very boring. It wasn't even really like a resume. I, I might have sent a resume, uh, but I just sent it to Mike Dang. And then what? months later, that worked out. I didn't hear anything for a month, so thought nothing had happened. But then it just took a long time. One of the, uh, one of the interesting things, I, I, long reads and long form, um, mm -hmm. in the early 2010s were super, um, like, those were, that was like where you could find the best writing on the internet. And, 100%. <laughs> yeah, like 15 years ago, it was legitimately hard to find like good, deep, thoughtful writing on the internet. Yep. 
And those were like some of the early threads. I actually ran a set a Facebook group called um, Media Feast where people were only allowed to post long reads. I feel like um, I remember that. Were you, you were in that group? Oh. I remember that that group existed. <laughs> I was just very around and, and yeah. many, many people ended up crossing my screen at some time. Yeah, but yeah, that's that's so cool. Um, and what yeah. at at long reads, you're involved in social. Is that did your perspective on like work and your own path start to change? Probably yes. It still feels so recent that it's unformed. But when I applied for that job, I was just so enamored with it and so excited and just wanted every. I wanted nothing more than to do that because uh, I came on in 2017, and that was a time when long reads had been just starting to publish original work. Um, and long reads was originally a curation service. It was originally, you know, founded by Mark Armstrong, and he created the long reads hashtag on Twitter, and it was about sharing um, often long form journalism from elsewhere. But they, uh, the company got acquired by Automatic in 2014, uh, and a lot of investment came into Long Reads, and they had a lot of room to expand. Um, and under Mike Dang as editor in chief, they were producing and commissioning a lot of writing and a lot of new work. But the perception was still that Long Reads is a curator. <laughs> um, so there wasn't enough eyes, there wasn't enough awareness that this was a place where original work was coming from, and they wanted to be getting more pitches, they wanted to get more essays submitted, they wanted more people to read what they were putting together, because the editorial team, it was a bit of an, a golden era. I, I think, well, I was there, but it was from, you know, before I was there, 2015-ish yeah. to 2019-ish. There was really fantastic writing there, and my job was to be an evangelist for it and to grow the audiences for it. And I'm like, I really don't know what a better job is than that. All I do is read fantastic new writing and get really close to the creation of that and then share it <laughs> and, and encourage people to engage with it because. If you're the writer, do you want to promote your work? It's challenging. It's hard for a lot of people to promote their own work. And it's very difficult to do self-promotion. It's challenging. Um, but you want to be read. <laughs> you want people to engage with your ideas. So someone yeah. like me is really useful to have. <laughs> what? When did uh, you start thinking about potentially forging your own path? Um... Probably throughout 2019, there was a lot going on behind the scenes in 2019. Anyone curious about it can can go ahead and Google what was going on in, at Long Reads in 2019. It's a long story. Uh, it ends with a number of layoffs and it ends with some chaos. Um, and I was ultimately laid off, but I, I was laid off um, in May of 2020 because a lot of that really brilliant editorial team 
was just not going to make it financially through yeah. the pandemic. Um, but I, but that job, because it was owned by Automatic, Automatic is a distributed company. So I was remote from 2017 on. I was doing all of my work online. I could log in from anywhere. I was location independent since 2017. So being location independent and not showing up in an office does really help encourage you to think differently and to be able to rely on yourself and to be like, well, I'm already doing all of my work in a location independent way on the internet. Maybe there are multiple ways to be doing that. And some of those can be on my own. And when did, so you left, um, what did you do when you first um, were let go of long reads? I isolated for the next several months. <laughs> I, I was, I grew up in New York and lived in New York and then moved to Austin in 2018, late 2018. So I had just moved um, and I moved with my husband. And the main, one of the primary reasons I moved was because at the time, compared to New York, housing costs were more affordable here yeah. in Austin. So I was moving, I was taking my remote job and my location independent job and choosing a place to live with a high quality of life. Uh, I was very burned out by New York <laughs> and really wanted to be somewhere m more like Austin, which has just a fantastic energy and wonderful people. Yeah, there's a lot of New York refugees here. Yeah, it's it you this is a great place to come if you're a, a New York expat and and it's not as politically fraught as coming from California. But so I moved here to buy a home. And this is a whole other thread that has been in the background the whole time. Um, because while I was um, location independent at Longreads, I could work remotely. I could work whenever I wanted to asynchronously. I was making more money. I made more money at Longreads, like significantly more money than I was making in my previous position, which was something I had wanted at the time. And it was stable. It was a set amount. In the background, this was also a 1099 position. Uh, this was a contracting position. So this is part of why I've had to figure out all of these things uh, behind the scenes, because that's just what the form said. Uh, we can... We can go long and deep into the misclassification of employees and, and that trend in technology especially. But uh, for, for me, I wanted the job. I was doing the job. It was a full-time job. It took full-time to do. Um, and I made full-time money. So I wanted to take that, move somewhere where I could afford a home and use the stability of having had that gig for a long time, having had an anchor client that just kept repeating in a very, um, a very stable looking line, and to turn that into home ownership because I was always very, 
very clear that that was something I wanted from the moment I left college and was like, oh, how do I pay the rent? I wanted to replace the rent (laughs) with a fixed mortgage. And I wanted the mortgage to be really, really low. I wanted it to be, I always envisioned myself with a partner. I always envisioned having somebody else here with me. But I also envisioned this needs to be something that can be handled on one income. And it needs to be handled on a modest income. Because I am a very, I only like art. And I only care about writing and creative people and theater and businesses that have terrible financials and low margin. (laughs) So I need to have a very low overhead and I got to lock that in. And I, we, I mean, it's a very long story and we can get into this, but I, you know, finally achieved that. Also in May of 2020, we closed in March of 2020 a week into, okay, we're going to shut down the world for a couple of weeks. I'm, you know, we'll come back. But it's good in, timing, though. Yeah, you know, right in there. That's when. That's when the closing happened. On well, the, it's better than March. better than 2021 when housing prices went bananas. But um, I mean, it was by the skin of our teeth. It was it was minutes away from falling wow. apart and not that's happening, good. and it had taken me a decade to do. Yeah, I'd I'd love to hear more about how you and your husband um, think about that. Do you explicitly say to each other, okay, we want to design a life that can work around like one income or like piecing together one income? Uh, What are your guiding principles? Yeah, so one of the best things about meeting my husband um, was that we have been on the same page and have had the same values from day one right away in our first conversations. Just very, very deep, clear, matching values. My husband uh, is named Brian Donahoe, and he is a musician. He's a professional musician, a lifelong musician, uh, I'd call him a decorated and accomplished musician. He's worked with uh, very, very fancy people. He has a very strong and interesting, meaningful career. And his whole life up until meeting me was trying desperately to find someone to be with who'd understand everything about what's chaotic about that life. Um, and because I'd come from the angles I'd come from, I understand the economics immediately. I just understand like, yeah, if you get certain phone calls, you take that phone call. (laughs) If you have the opportunity to show up in the middle of the night to go play with one of your heroes, you're going to do that. And you're going to come home at five in the morning. And that's what's going to happen because that's what you're called to do. Um, so things like that were so important to us. That's so beautiful. I think, uh, my partner and I, she's very into art and creating, and I just see that as so central and important to like who she is and oh, yeah. she, su- she supports me similarly. And it's, it's so powerful to have like those things, right? The things that can't be m- like 
purely monetized or optimized or captured. Sure, you might make some money doing it, but knowing that those are uh, worth pursuing are such powerful anchors, especially in a relationship. And Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, sim- similar similar to you, I think finding my partner Angie, like just finding someone that understands like the weird way. Yeah, uh, I've been living is like yeah. Yeah, I'm down. Yeah, of course. As somebody who can, you know, who can roll with it and who can be in the present moment with you and understand why you care so much and why it's so important, why I I have to do it this way. You know, I think it would just be what an incredible waste of talent to meet someone like my husband look at him and say, like, why aren't you home by five? <laughs> well, yeah. because that's just not what that industry is. It's it's what Daniel Vassallo calls a stochastic industry, uh, yeah. where a lot of random chance just comes into the picture a lot. And you go with it, or you can't do that job. And some people have to do that job. It's their only choice. <laughs> Yeah, and I think in some ways the artists are really becoming more important. I think it's hard to see, uh, but I think they're becoming more important in terms of navigators for people because the entire world is becoming more probabilistic or stochastic. Sure, yes. We're we're moving from like these predictable paths which are live in our imagination and at one time could be lived out in reality but can no longer be lived out in reality. Um, and it, it seems like that is a big, um, interest for you because like our systems are not designed to support these lives, especially in the U S like one of the biggest hacks is basically to leave the U S because everything Mm -hmm. just gets a little easier. (laughs) Yeah. So I've heard, (laughs) I've, I've, it's very interesting to me at this point how, uh, I've lashed myself to the ship of America and I'm very, very interested in the United States and in making things about the United States work. <laughs> I think it's, it was super valuable for me to leave the U.S. because I was able to appreciate some of the things I missed. The entrepreneurial culture, the culture of being generous and helping people without an expectation, that is very unique um, to working in the US, harder to find in other places. Um, So I definitely miss that being abroad. I did not miss the healthcare bureaucracy. um, Why would you? (laughs) And just like all the other stuff I have to deal with. I basically joke to people, I'm breaking some law right now. I just don't know which one. Listen, man, you're like, (laughs) you're you're just miles ahead of a lot of folks because I also have jokes that it's just like, I, don't, I can't tell you how many laws we're all just breaking like all of the time. And that's part of why law enforcement is a, a big topic because who, which laws are we enforcing and who, yeah. who is getting disproportionately hit by that versus <laughs> like the fact that we're breaking a law right now. We just don't know <laughs> which one it is because it's probably archaic and it was a par- a policy that was created, you know, maybe 67 years ago because that year some specific thing was going on and then no one took it off the books and it's just still there. 
Yeah, and you actually shared something which was pretty interesting. It, it was IRS specifications sharing whether something is a hobby or a business. And one oh, of right, the, the IRS <laughs> hobby loss rules. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the ways you can tell if something is a hobby and not a business is if you don't get satisfaction from it, literally mm-hmm. explicitly in the IRS, right? So, like, mm-hmm. I mean, this is so ingrained in our culture, too, that like work is suffering. Right. Yeah. And like it's in the IRS many, code. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and a lot of these things like made sense at one point, but like just maybe. aren't really working anymore. Yeah, maybe not. But like th- these things just aren't really working at, at the edges anymore. Do you think like are you are you short like are you long term optimistic about these things that like things will shape up um, and be oriented around embracing these paths or do you think like basically politicians just want to turn everyone into full-time employees? It's a good question. Um, I don't think in long time horizons and that's probably, that's I'm, probably I'm similar and could be a down byproduct of this path, right? It might very well be. I, I really subscribe to, um, research and evidence that human beings are horrible at predictions. We try to do it all the time because we really want to uh, mitigate uncertainty because emotionally our limbic systems hate uncertainty. So we really want to try to reduce it. But we live in worlds that are super interconnected and have just larger and larger complex things and systems crossing over all of each other all the time that there's always everything always exists all at once whether you're aware of it or not so i don't think too far out yeah uh the the longest i think far out is that mortgages come on 30-year time horizons and like that's (laughs) that's in my background that's that's in there i'm gonna pay that bill for a long time let's let's start there um sure how how do you get a mortgage as a self-employed person? First, you're a masochist. <laughs> um, first, you want you want pain, and you go directly towards <laughs> the pain. So you you figured it out, right? So I and did, you help, but it you, took years. <laughs> you right, and you you help people figure it out. What what are some of the so like what are the like things people should do to make this easier for themselves? Yeah, so because I was so obsessed with the concept of home, the feeling of stability, so driven by that and by having your housing feel secure, I was driven for a very long time, for years and years and years, to make getting a mortgage work. I applied three times. And was rejected twice. Uh, I did not figure it out the first two times. And only when I got the information correcting my second attempt, when I got feedback on the second attempt, did I figure out what I needed to change uh, for the third attempt to go through. And, and what was that feedback? So the feedback was, 
Um, when I first applied, I had a W-2 and I had a normal application process. I just didn't make enough money and it was very simple. They were just like, you don't make money. You work in odd <laughs> industries. Uh, your margins are too low. You are not uh, able to access this tier of quality of life. And I was like, great, I should go get more money. I went and got more money. One of the ways I got more money was becoming an independent contractor. I made more money. But then uh, we applied for the first time. My husband and I, when we were engaged, applied together uh, right before we were getting married uh, to buy a place in 2018. The feedback we got from that was very bespoke um, and very specific to us. And this is hint number one. We went to a credit union. Um, we went to UFCU. We and is went, that just because yeah. they're more local and like thinking yes. um, in their community a little more? Yeah, and I think they have missions. And I think the missions are important. The mission mm. statement matters for credit unions in a way that um, the major big name commercial banks that spit out conventional mortgage, mortgages for breakfast, like they don't have a a mission about educating the community, yeah. right. <laughs> but credit unions do. So nice. we got uh, feedback on our tax returns and somebody pointed at lines in it and the parts of it that were, um, that were holding us back and that were keeping underwriters from approving ah, us. Nice. What are the, and, do you remember those lines? Oh, yes. They were my entire... I re-engineered my life to make those lines look different for the next two years to make sure that I could get approved. What, what are they? So, <laughs> the, <laughs> the big difference is that a lot of the ratios that mortgage underwriters are looking at are based on your adjusted gross income. And adjusted gross income uh, okay. means something different when you have a W-2 than it does when you're self-employed. Because right. the, the tax strategy for being self-employed, which even it's if you're not self-employed, yeah, exactly. Is to write off your expenses um, and to, to, to claim qualified business expenses because it adjusts your gross income. So you're taxed on a lower income because you're proving on paper, well, so much of this money went back out the door. It's not in my bank account, so I can't give it to you. But if you are trying to minimize your tax burden by claiming every business expense that you're entitled to that you're that are qualified for your industry that lowers your adjusted gross income which lowers your borrowing power and thus it affects any kind of loan you would ever want to get so what what do you do do you just not do the do you file a different type of form or how do you You do file that? the same form the what's interesting about it as we're making jokes about like not knowing what laws you're breaking, it's tax fraud to not claim those business expenses. <laughs> if you have a receipt for a business expense and you needed to buy a new computer and your computer is important for your career, if you that's don't awesome. report that business expense, that's tax fraud. 
even though it would mean that you pay more taxes and the IRS gets more money. But so what you have to do is literally change your behavior. I need to not buy that computer this year because Uh, I can't have that receipt because I can't report it because if I report it, it will adjust my gross income and this will lower my borrowing power. This is even for credit unions? Yeah. Oh, this is anywhere. And this is okay. this is still scrutinizing two years of financial history because that's Jeez. what they'll want. <laughs> All right, so we're probably scaring people about um, going to work <laughs> on their own now. What are some of the things you've learned that maybe aren't as scary as people think? Sure. So, I mean, and and part of what I hope to be doing with the stuff that I'm working on now, and I think the the reason you where you found me and what community you found me participating in. Um, I am in a community that Daniel Vassallo runs called Small Bets. Yeah, he's been a past guest. He has been his a His episode's past. great. I, I heard his episode. I, I prepared for this. <laughs> I also listened to Angie's episode. <laughs> I, nice. I went in on the backlog. I uh, So I was in the first cohort of small bets because I find uh, the way that Daniel expresses specific things that he thinks are very counterintuitive and refreshing. Uh, His take is very interesting. So I wanted to hear what he had to say. And I joined that group very early. But that entire philosophy is just about... um, creating small bets in the world and having a portfolio yeah. of small bets. Um, and one of the things that I created was based on a prompt that I got from that community to think about like, well, what's, what's one of the hardest things you've ever done at, that you did, that you accomplished? And can you teach someone else how to do it? And so immediately, like, yeah, qualifying for a mortgage yeah. as a self-employed applicant was the hard, one of the harder things I've ever done. And there is a way to do it. And so on the one hand, I apologize for 20 minutes ago making it scary how all of these things <laughs> interconnect. But to help solve that and to help resolve some of that tension, I'm trying to now create resources that spell out what I did so that you can skip the first two rounds where I got rejected just for not having the right instructions. Uh, There are instructions. These things do exist. There are pathways. There, There is a pathway to starting your own company that's just with DBAs. There are pathways that are through LLCs. There are steps to these things, and you can just follow them in order, and someone just needs to write them in a clear way so that you can follow those steps. Yeah, I think <laughs> there there is still a lack and a huge opportunity, and maybe you're going to fill this void, of people with those skills of knowing how to do these things that also speak the language of self-employed people. Yeah. Um, like, I'm navigating whether to turn an LLC into an S-corp now. And I don't, 
like I know the information is out there. I don't know how to assess somebody for being good at this or not, or even like what to do next. You and I should chat because <laughs> I know what you should look at. And I, I, I started an S corp. I, my current company is structured as an S corp right now and has been for 2021, uh, for 2020. Gosh, for 2022, because it's almost 2023 now. Time <laughs> yeah, is wow. scary. Um, I am going to revoke the S election for next year because I finally watched it <laughs> for the last eight or nine months since I incorporated this LLC. I now see what it looks like and how it plays out into your balance sheet and into your profit and loss statement. And... Um, the way that you have to, the way you structure paying yourself a salary, uh, to me is not worth it in the end. It, it, well, it erodes your profitability. How, how so? Can you bring that alive a little more? Yeah. Um, or I mean, and this is my opinion because I also think that an S corp, depending on what you're making, all of this stuff matters what the numbers are. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give some context. So <laughs> yeah, LLC, sure. LLC, basically you're getting a um, EIN from the government that is like a um, designation of your company as a legal entity. You can open bank accounts with that. But yes. pretty much uh, if you're a solo operator, you're sort of like, you can flow the money in between all your different bank accounts. You're just sort of keeping an inventory and accounting of your expenses and then just mashing that up at the end of the year. S-Corp is sort of a corporation that takes all your money and mm -hmm. pays your expenses and then distributes profits to you in the form of a salary. And my understanding of that is that the costs go up because you need to pay for more paperwork, uh, more administration. Yes. And yeah, you're also just doing different things with money in terms yes. of uh, either paying yourself smaller amounts or keeping money and there's different deductions that you don't qualify for. So yeah, would lo yes. would love to hear some of your reflections. Like what, uh, were there like one or two things where you're like, oh, this is totally less than I expected. I'm going to take a different designation. Yes. So here's where I fell on this. Um, the rule of thumb is that if you're the, if you want one number if you're making more than 80,000 in a year an S corp makes sense and is tax efficient less if, than 80 or more more than 80 uh, more than 80 okay you're between 60 and 80 we're in a gray area and we talk about it if you're under 60 this makes no sense at all it just okay. makes no sense at all if you're in this 60 to 80 universe and that's where i am and that's where um that's where i am hovering since leaving my job so here's what happens you do need to come up for, for an s corp you need to pay yourself a reasonable salary what is a reasonable salary well there are cpas and folks on the back end <laughs> who will spend lots and lots of time um, helping you to determine what this number is. And it's an important number because th there are uh, it'll trigger IRS audits if you go too low. Yeah. If you had a job 
uh, before you went and did all of these entrepreneurial things. And you, uh, if whatever your job title is, whatever you call yourself now that you feel like you've made up your own title, there's still ways to um, benchmark what the market rate is for that skill set. And you need to kind of be within the realm of that market rate. Got it. So in my case, being within the realm of that market rate, because my skill sets are interesting and they are odd and they have gotten me a certain tier of money already, that means that I can't pay myself the reasonable salary I would like to. I would Got like it. to pay myself something like, you know, I want to make up a number. I want to pay myself $15,000. I want to like pay myself like a part-time employee yeah, right. and leave the rest of it in the, in the business and invest it. I want to do it differently, but I have to pay much more than that to myself because of my benchmark. Right. And then that erodes my profitability. Got it. So, so you have to pay yourself a reasonable salary. 60 to 80 gray area below is probably yeah. LLC is better. Is yes. there now, is there an argument for just setting up an S Corp in case you make more money? Um, and then just not taking the election? I'm not sure that you can set it up as an you you have to take the election. Oh, to okay. Set up the S Corp. An S Corp is just a tax election. Got it. That's um, all it is. Got it. And yeah, so I think you have to make do you have to make that designation by like July 15th or something? Yes, it's that's the latest date that you can do. Okay. And are you, you like um are you paying for a provider to manage this for you, like collective or something or doing it yourself? I'm working with a company called Collective. Collective. Yeah, yeah. Which that's is the a one I've fantastic seen. fantastic company for this use case. And if you are in that zone uh, where you're making more than 80K, run, don't walk to them because their, their pricing is fantastic and they roll it all up together. They'll do taxes. They'll do all the accounting. They'll do everything for a rate that is very fair. And they're, they're truly fantastic. What happens when you start into thinking and setting things up and making elections being like, I want to do this now because I'll grow in the future. Well, in the meantime, you're racking up losses and those stay on the balance sheet. <laughs> and then you just yeah. look like you're not making a profit. And the IRS will only let you do that for four years in a row. I, I basically screwed up this year. I Forgot about the S Corp and ended up making more money and uh, missed out on some of the elections. But yep, yep. yeah, Ma maybe Collective uh, should be sponsoring this podcast. I'm gonna have to reach out to. I'm gonna have to I'll, reach I'll out. Call, to I'll send them an email. I'll send it to my rep and just be like, um, I had a chat with Paul, and I think that you should um, make. I think you should help it. Uh, be more of a no no brainer for Paul to do an escort because yes, collective. We need you. Me and Catherine are onboarding so many people onto <laughs> Solo Pass. There's going to be an explosion. We're doing the deep emotional customers. work for you. 
Um, this is great. So yes, pardon me for like going into super technicalities, but like some people. Well, this is my life. I mean, yeah, (laughs) the technicalities Um, matter a lot. So, what about have you dug into employing your spouse in an S corp as well? Because like my wife does work with me sometimes, and there's actually a reasonable case that you could like pay your spouse as well, and then do other stuff with healthcare, which is pro probably a excuse to dig into like healthcare stuff. Well, yeah, sure. Well, so now, um, you know, I'm not getting any dollars from collective, but collective is also fantastic for this. No one is paying me to say that. Um, if you wanted to go that route, you can, uh, my spouse and I are, very good. One one of the great things about meeting Brian and the fact that he is a musician is that I am just not in that lane. We aren't in each other's lanes and they yeah. don't cross very much. And we have very independent work. We pursue them separately. That said, I still sent you an example of one time where we did work together. Um but that for the fun of it, because why not? But um, we keep things pretty separate. And I am also very fascinated and interested in economics and the business side and, and revenue and everything about profitability. And my husband is a classic, like would very much rather not think about <laughs> it, used to file his taxes like by October, whenever always was doing extensions and I was like yep those days are over we're doing it now I do it in February when I'm bored (laughs) because I want to (laughs) so we have very different approaches to to how much we care about all sorts of things but yes it's very possible to to handle these things together and to combine them especially if it makes sense for your taxes yeah what um should people be as scared um about healthcare as many people are like I think like it's not great for self-employed people but I think people's projection of it is far worse than the reality of it like the Obamacare plans are decent they are decent and I will also do my um unsponsored plug I'm just not sponsored enough y'all but (laughs) I I'll do my unsponsored plug for healthcare.gov I started you know I've had healthcare.gov well, I've had marketplace plans since 2017, so I've done this five times. Yeah, same. <laughs> I'm going to do it six for the sixth time, wow. like in a week. Um, but the first year or two, because we moved in 2018, so the first year or two, I did it in New York, and New York That's has the a worst state. state. Ex- they have a state exchange, <laughs> and it's trash. It's it's just trash. Um, I call them hope and pray plans. Like the yeah, New York they're, plans are so terrible. Bad. I've it's done fun. four I mean, states you know, now too. I've done New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and now Texas. Um, so you have an even bigger sample yeah. size than I do. Massachusetts is by far the best value for price. Um, well, and Texas, they've been at it the longest. Texas is probably second, which would probably surprise people. Connecticut's pretty bad, and New York is just like, oh my gosh, they, New York these is are a like fire. I call them hope and pray expensive cocktail plans. <laughs> 
I mean, and, I mean, listen, one of the reasons I needed to not live there was because cocktails are a very important part of like yeah. getting through life in New York. Just yeah, drinking it all away. You want to have high-priced cocktails, not high-priced insurance. <laughs> yes, there's the tagline for the commercial cut. But um, yes, so the thing about Texas is that Texas um, would really like everyone to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and thus does not have its own state exchange, which yeah. means that you can get plans through healthcare.gov, the federal marketplace. Healthcare.gov is a good website. I'm going to go out on a limb and have my unpopular opinion. It's a good website. It's a better experience. I started doing this in 2017. Things have improved. That's yeah. a very unpopular thing to say. I'm sorry. No, it's very it is, good. You know, it's still a government website, and a lot of folks will will hate on government websites all day long. It's gotten better every year. Yeah, it's it's, it's actually very good. The service is excellent. Very like, good. Uh, you can call someone and get somebody on the phone in thirty like thirty seconds. In Connecticut, they still have an exchange that is like it's terrible. Horrible. I could never get anyone on the phone in New York. I mean, <laughs> and my plans in Texas have been better. My premiums yeah, they have are gone pretty good. down. Like what coverage we've the coverage that becomes available each year keeps improving. One of the main things that I encourage everybody to do, whether you're in a state with an exchange or whether you just um whether you're in a state like Texas where we have the most uninsured Americans of any state and you can go on the healthcare.gov site, there are searches that there, there's a search option where you don't have to fill out the form to look at these things. You just put in your zip code and it'll show you the same interface. You'll see the same information. You don't have to fill out the form first and you'll see what we're talking about and then you can use filters to just narrow it down. And my favorite filter is to use the ratings. So I only look for plans that have higher than four-star ratings. Um, and it's worked out every time. So there's always going to be trash coverage in some places or terrible catastrophic options. But then there are great ones and there are tax advantages to paying um, a better premium for better coverage. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, so don't be scared of healthcare. Maybe be scared of getting a mortgage, but there are workarounds there. there you don't have to. I mean, you know, I, I'm trying to help with this. And if, you, <laughs> if, if you're scared of, let's put it this way, if I've just scared you about it, send me an email or DM me on Twitter because I will just, I'll talk you into it now. <laughs> I'll post the link to your course um, as well. Which yeah, I think sure. Is, um, $15, I think. Mm -hmm. I will definitely be buying that if I consider buying a home at one point. Um, I'd love to um, ask you about um, Tennessee Williams' essay oh, yeah. you sent me. Really yeah. awesome. I just read this. It's the catastrophe of success. So I thought I might read something um, from his essay. Um, essay, which is so cool. Once you know this is true, that the heart of man, his body, and his brain are forged in a white-hot furnace for the purpose of conflict, in parentheses, the struggle of creation, and that with this conflict removed, the man is a sword cutting daisies, 
that not privation but luxury is the wolf at the door and that the fangs of this wolf are all the little vanities and conceits and laxities that success is hair to. Why then, with this knowledge, you are at least in position of knowing where danger lies. I love this so much. It talks about him getting famous and just sort of like losing his inner passion and going on a journey of reclaiming it. What does this essay mean to you? I mean, number one, that's how a playwright uses a paragraph. Like that, <laughs> that's how, how brief yeah. he can say something so grand and so uh, full of meaning and just making sure that every single word counts and you're using the full extent of your imagination to write something. So that's one. But I read this essay probably when I was a teenager. I don't know how old I was at the time. But this essay really, it just got to me at a useful and impressionable age. And I read it one time early on, and I've kept it in the back of my head for decades since because I have a very deep belief um, in the uselessness of chasing fame. And and the fact that fame has backfired, if you listen to the self-report of so many of any of your heroes in any cultural or artistic frame, anyone who you respect who has achieved a level of fame, fame almost always mostly logistically means that you've lost privacy (laughs) and like the reality of it is often really depressing it's challenging it makes you question the meaning of life and the purpose of what you're doing it makes you question the work you're doing your art your place in the world it's a very all of the self-report that i've ever read starting with that has said to me, this is not a state of being that's really worth aspiring to. And many of the people like Tennessee Williams who can write things like that weren't trying to do that. They were trying to, in his case, trying to tell the truth (laughs) or trying to just like really create something that meant something deep to them to express something about their lives that was important and meaningful. And the fame comes from whether if they hit some truth that does resonate with a lot of people, this is just a distraction that happens to people who are great at what they do or who make something that resonates a lot. And, and this, that essay really was the one. It's like three pages long. And it just it makes so much sense to me. He describes... Um, a life where he was suddenly catapulted into living out of hotel rooms and being waited on hand and foot and how empty that felt. And he has a great line in it about how nobody in this life should be cleaning up anyone else's messes. And that if it's worse for Mm, anyone, it's probably worse for the recipient. Yeah, You should do things for yourself and you should struggle because that's what humans that's what we're designed to deal with. So might as well stick with the struggles you have and you don't need them to be 
significantly worse. Life is already very hard. So you might as well just try to do the work you're trying to do. What do you aim at instead of fame? The truth is a big one. Um, and, you know, I, I identify as a writer when I'm being ambitious and strong and have a good self-image. And I, my husband identifies with music and he is a composer. So we both write, but we write different content and mine has language and his has instruments. But you want to make something that feels true. And whenever I'm writing anything or revising something, anytime I'm spending all of my time rewriting a sentence over and over and over, my editor mind is asking myself, is that true? Do I mean that? Is that what I mean? What do I mean? Say something more specific, try again. And then at the end of that interrogation, maybe I have something that resonates or that's thoughtful. And that feels important to me. That feels like an important thing to try to do because the things that aren't true feel wrong. And I'm trying to get things to feel right and to feel true to me. And that is usually what I'm trying to do most of the time. I love that. Yeah. Wanted to shift to some rapid fire questions. Uh, since right. you were listening, you probably heard some of them, but uh, who's a path role model uh, you've had? Oh, that's a great question. I'm not picking one. Yeah, you can have multiple. No rules. Yeah, th there's an archetype. Uh, the archetype is um, character actors. Oh, interesting. Character actors. That, that's always who I wanted to be. That's the kind of career I wanted to have. I think it's the career that my husband has uh, the parallel of in music because he's a. He's a guy who can get plugged into the session and he will make that session amazing, whatever room it is. Um, you don't want to be the front runner. You want to be somebody who's like unique for being authentically who you are. Character actors were never being known for um, their appearance unless it's unique. <laughs> uh, they're, they're known for their work and they're respected for the body of work and the way that that gets expressed is that they work over and over and over and over again because people keep calling them because they're wonderful to be around, they're wonderful to work with, and they do an amazing job at their work. Those are definitely, that's the I career that. I've always wanted to have. Who's a good example of that? Um, one of my favorite actors of all time is Michael Shannon. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Shannon. He's a great one. Michael freaking Shannon <laughs> is just truly a genius. What an incredible actor with so much range. And now has come in. I mean, he he really hit a different tier and he's much more famous now. He's more well known and he's been right. in like franchises, I guess. He's he's played very well-known villains um but his entire career and some of the deep cuts of his work are just like something else what is what is something you've read uh that's inspired you read listened to watched uh lately that's inspired you it's a good question too 
Um, there are so many, so I want to pick something really good. There, the my favorite play of all time, since I don't know how many folks are uh, interested in theater or drama or that form of literature. So hopefully, this is a source or a type of information that folks don't know, so they can discover this now. Um, there's a play by Jez Butterworth called Jerusalem. Uh, Mark Rylance played the lead in that, and he is another perfect example of a character actor with a career the length of your arm. Um, Jerusalem is the best play I've ever seen and the wow. best writing, some of the best writing that anyone has fit into 80 pages that I've ever read. That's one. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Something, something that probably others might not say. What's what's next in uh, your journey? What what sort of bets are you making now in uh, Dan Vassalo's um, language? So um, I'm in this community, uh, the small bets community that Dan Vassalo started, and I've been slowly creating new resources always asking myself and prompting myself with the same question of like, what's something very hard that I've had to conquer in my life or something very thorny and difficult that I've run into again and again? Have I figured any of them out? And if so, can I download whatever it was I learned that helped me do it out from my brain and from my experience and put it out into the world in a way that might be helpful? And that is what I'm trying to do now. I've been doing, within that community, he has guest classes and he tapped me to teach one that's about what to expect when you go into self-employment in the beginning, especially if you're, if you have a full-time job, if you're an employee, if you dream of this life and you haven't made that leap yet, what can you expect uh, when you make this kind of giant lifestyle change. And Daniel is a fantastic lightning rod for many frequently asked questions about self-employment. Um, and then he, bless him, punts those in my direction because I have a lot uh, of material that I've I've put into, in his case, a speaking and webinar format to walk through, you know, how do you incorporate? When do you incorporate? How do you get health insurance? How do you qualify for life insurance? How do you qualify for disability insurance? How do you secure housing? How do you get a lease or a mortgage? What happens if you die? Like, then, then what? what? How do you take care of the people in your family? And all of the same questions that you're so eloquent about when you deal with the uncertainty and the emotional psychological baggage of like, can I even do all of these things? <laughs> My answer is usually a resounding yes, because they can be done and they have been done. And so I'll just put out into the world in 30 slides in 90 minutes, like here, here's how I went about those things. Here are the questions I asked at the very beginning. And here's my response to what I ended up doing and things like, I tried the S election. I watched what happened for nine months. Here's why I'm going to reverse that decision. And if my circumstances were different, 
why I'd encourage someone like Paul to consider it, you know, th- things like this. So I'm trying to build a bunch of resources now, taking what I've been prototyping behind the scenes in the community and trying to, number one, make a lot more of my writing public, uh, to write down more of my thoughts and opinions and instructions around these things so more people can access them. A lot of it for free, hopefully. A lot of it as a gift to the world. And then some of it um, to try to create options where you can support me while I am also navigating all of this and my dear husband who doesn't want to look at our taxes. <laughs> I love it. Well, it was so great to talk with you today. I feel like we could have went another couple of hours getting into I the know. It's, technicalities it <laughs> of these things. But um yeah, you're a great resource. I'm really excited to continue sharing um, what you create and share out there. Um, kudos there to will Dan. Be very um, more soon. Brought you into his fold, but yeah, keep sharing. Um, this stuff is super valuable. I've gotten a lot of questions about it over the years, and I'm happy to point to people to a valuable research resource. Uh, awesome. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today, Catherine. Anytime. I'm so pleased that I could come. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book, The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Hey all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can of course check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.